0: You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Good morning, everybody. My name is Tucker. I'm a college intern here that goes to BU, and I'll be reading our scripture so if you have a Bible open up to Daniel 5, sorry, and in verse 29 and we're going to go through 6 verse 9. It says, "Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62." Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm and over them three administrators, including Daniel's. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit, so the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they couldn't find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, We will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom and the prefects, satraps' advisors and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict, that for 30 days anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is so irrevocable that cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Morning. Good morning It's great to be with you today um, 10 thirty service you always intimidate me for some reason 1030 is always a little quieter there's always a little more like uh, anxiety when I'm looking out at the crowd so uh, I just want you to know that you intimidate me all right a little more than the nine you'd like that Jonathan you're like good that's how it should be yeah <laughs> uh, I want to begin with a question today that I hope changes the scope of how we view this new year right we're always making new year resolutions in january thinking about changing what we need to improve on Uh, i want this question to be on the minds of our entire church this year okay if the world as you know it ended tomorrow would your discipleship to jesus survive if the world as you know it ended tomorrow would your discipleship to jesus survive i do not mean the actual apocalypse where everything's on fire and everyone's like the world's actually blowing up or something, I just mean the world as you see it, as you've come to be comfortable with it, as you operate within it, if that ceases to exist and the world becomes a very different place, would your discipleship to Jesus survive? Okay. In the 1930s, less than 100 years ago, there was a man in Germany named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's a Christian leader in Nazi Germany. He created a small seminary in rural Germany, a place called Finkenwalde, in order to combat the fact that churches in Germany were caving to the Nazi regime. Hitler wanted the church, the authority of the church, to propagate Nazi beliefs. And largely, they did that, demonstrating that their discipleship did not hold up against the severity of the empire that Hitler was creating. Some people, including Bonhoeffer's own students, They questioned his attempts to fight that formation, that cultural formation, by starting a seminary. They questioned if this was really the most valuable use of your time, money, and energy given what is going on in the world. John Tyson, pastor in New York, in his book, Beautiful Resistance, uh, recounts the effect of his work like this. He says, uh, what Bonhoeffer was doing in Finkenwalde had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing with his army. Discipleship must be stronger than cultural formation. Loyalty must be stronger than compromise, right? He says this in the church must be stronger than that which is outside of it. He said the times called for a beautiful resistance. He says such a prophetic stance was in some ways laughable. Bonhoeffer's seminary was small and its season was short. The Gestapo would close the seminary in 1937, which is pretty early in the development of things. And in many ways, it was a feeble joke compared to the power of the Third Reich. But it was a prophetic seed of a faithful church. And over time, as Jesus promised, the small seed grew and bore fruit. And today, he says, the Reich is a shameful memory, Hitler is in the grave, and the German church at large is repentant. But the fruit of Finkenwalde, the community, the vision, and the work, has actually gone on to shape a vision of Christian discipleship that has inspired millions. Bonhoeffer was right. This within the church must be stronger than that which is outside of it. And so I share this dramatic example. We can all agree that this is a pretty dramatic example. I share this as a reminder of how quickly things can change and how surprisingly it, uh, things can be created out of um, Christian contexts. right? So this was less than 100 years ago in a Western country where Christianity was the dominant religion, faith, and worldview. And this happened. And at large, the church was able to be manipulated in a way to where a lot of Christians ended up supporting that caving, compromising, because of the force of the current cultural formation at that time. Okay? But I also, on the other end of this, want to point out that ho- the, the second holocaust doesn't have to happen for uh, the world to try to compromise your discipleship, right? Holocaust 2.0 does not have to happen for your discipleship to be compromised, okay? Um, Every single culture that Christians find themselves in uh, will engage in this fight, in this battle, in this resistance, right? Our hyper-politicized country is currently fighting, waging a war for your allegiance, okay? There are powerful magnetic forces on the end of our political spectrum that want to rip the country apart, but more specifically, they want, to, uh, they want Christians to compromise. Whether they will come out and directly say that or not, the forces, the ideologies themselves, want every type of person to compromise and give their allegiance to them, right? The far left wants you to abandon all conviction about objective truth, perhaps sexuality, men and women no longer just tolerating things, right? Maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we would have said, um, you know, Christians just need to tolerate things, right? Uh, Which is totally fine, and I agree with that, but now it's evolved into a, you must affirm. You must wave this flag, wear this band, wear this sticker, wear these ideological symbols. You must join what we are fighting for, or else you may be demonized, right? The far right, in the same way, in order to respond to this, the far right wants you to deny elections, storm the Capitol, and take back America for God like he needs help, right? we got to fight back against this. You have to choose a side that's like kind of sort of like the Bible would describe and just pick the closest one and just start fighting, right? He wants your allegiance. And so I say this to say Jesus, to use more election language, Jesus is not running unopposed for your allegiance, for your heart. He's not running unopposed. There is a fight that is happening. You will not drift into allegiance to Jesus, but you will drift out of it if you do not resist. Discipleship to Jesus, a strong discipleship that adapts, right, that fights back, that does not conform, that holds to the way of Jesus, it must be fought for. It must be a constant, peaceful rebellion against the formation with which the world is trying to form you. Okay? Keyword peaceful. So again, we ask this question. If the world as you know it ends tomorrow, will your discipleship to Jesus survive? This thing actually happened about three years ago. You guys remember when COVID happened? You guys are like, what is it so far along ago, right? No one remembers that. That's literally how everyone describes it. When COVID just happened, right? I mean, everyone in this room has said that phrase like a thousand times by now. You know, when COVID just happened and then everything changed, right? Suddenly we're just living our lives and we hear these rumors about something going on in East Asia. And then it's, you know, December, January gets here and then it's India and then it's Italy. And we're like, that's super weird. Glad it's not here. And then March comes and everyone's stock portfolio is down 60 percent. And the short guy on television is telling everyone they can't do anything. Right. Everything changed the world as you know it was no longer in existence. A new world had ensued, okay? And COVID actually peeled back the curtain of the Western church, the American church, and revealed an ugly truth. The sad reality was that the disciples that the Western church was making at large were hardly disciples at all, if they were even disciples. It was a Blessing kind of in disguise that may still be in disguise today because to use a biblical metaphor, some of the chaff and the wheat was separated and maybe what we have now is something a little more adaptable, a little more pure than what the church was three years ago. So in that way, you can say it was a blessing in disguise, but it's also a little damning, right? It challenges our systems, it challenges our structures, it challenges our disciplines and our convictions. Church attendance and every Christian statistic you want to look at plummeted in covid And it has not recovered by any substantial amount. It filtered out a lot of things and a lot of people in a good way and a bad way. But at the same time, I'm excited, right? So I do college ministry here. Me and Haley do college ministry here. And the students I meet with who want to follow Jesus at large, they really want nothing to do with some milquetoast, lukewarm, passive discipleship to Jesus. And that pumps me up, right? And so I, I want us to look toward that, right? And I don't want our whole church to be like that. And I would just say right now we're a young church. We haven't really existed as this unit for very long. I wouldn't say the answer to our big question today is necessarily yes. And that's okay right now, right? But if we know this right now and in two years and in three years, our answer is still yes, something is wrong, right? And so we are beginning today another year where we need to think critically about where we are lacking and where we need to grow and where our allegiance is being pulled away, right? And so today we have a perfect story for this in Daniel chapter 6. Our man Daniel cannot catch a break, right? He's on his fourth king across his third empire, and he's about 80 years old, and I'm sure he's just sick of it, right? He is sick of it. He was taken from everything he knew in Jerusalem. His city burned to the ground finally, after so many years and decades, is promoted to the highest rank in the government in Babylon, finally gets the respect on his name, maybe that he deserves, maybe that he just got lucky with, who knows, but, and then as we read, as Tucker read for us, the very night he is promoted, the king who promotes him is assassinated, and Persia comes in and takes over the whole thing. He can't seem to catch a break, but if we read through the story of Daniel, we seem to notice Daniel's pretty constant through it all. His discipleship, his allegiance to the Lord, seems like it's built of a lot of resolve. He seems like he has something. He has his finger on the pulse of what needed to be happening over these last 65, 70 years in order to meet this moment with the right response. And we today are in a similar situation, right? You don't need to be taken over by a foreign empire in order to be indoctrinated into an ideology that is not consistent with the way of Jesus, right? We live in a, uh, something I've heard, a digital Babylon, I don't coin that term, but I've heard it. I agree with that. Everyone in this room has a rectangle in their pocket that's constantly feeding them politics and opinions and ideologies that do not match up with the way of Jesus. And statistics would say that the average Christian, let alone the average just person, is looking at it for over three hours a day when they don't necessarily need to be, right? And so if it's not too late to make a New Year's resolution for our church, let this be our prayer this year uh, as we go into 2023. Lord, teach us what it means to take up our cross and follow you and use our lives to make disciples who do the same. Amen. So we're going to talk about the story of Daniel 6 today, and when we, what we notice right off the bat in the text that Tucker read for us at the beginning is that he's got some pretty clever coworkers that will do anything to win this rat race, that is, these government positions, all right? They, they come up with this plan to hold Daniel hostage, basically, in between two decisions that he doesn't want to make. He get, they get the king to sign this ridiculous edict forbidding all religious worship that's not centered around the kingdom and the empire expanding, and so it's a win-win. Either Daniel stops praying or he stops living, right? It's a pretty rock-solid plan. They do this because they link his uh, what they called his extraordinary spirit, which just means his, his ability as a worker, right? They link that to his communion with God. They say, all these kings who've come before, Daniel worked for, they didn't kill him, right? They used, this guy was like, they saw him as valuable. Something's, something's with this guy. They understood that almighty God has favor on Daniel. And no matter what the empire goes through, this guy Daniel has just been solid through it all. He's very reliable, very solid. We didn't force him out at 65, right? He's still here. He's 80. We didn't force him to retire, and so they're, they're wondering, how can we get Daniel out of the way? Because the king even thinks this foreigner, Daniel, is better at our job than we are. He's putting him in charge over us. And so they come up with this example, or sorry, with this, uh, with this what word am I looking for? They come up with this idea, right, to make an example out of Daniel and anyone who worships Daniel's God, uh, that that won't be tolerated as long as they have a position to gain, right? So Boston is kind of like this. Boston is like 70 million rat races layered on top of each other. That's what Boston is, right? If you're in this room, you're m- most likely in some sort of race for grad school, a spot on the athletics team, or a promotion at work, right? And you find yourself getting caught up in these rat races, and all of your employ- uh, your, your coworkers and your peers at school, right, they're constantly caught up with uh, this rat race. And if they didn't achieve, by the time they want to achieve it, this achievement that's in their head, then, you know, we don't know what's gonna happen. They may completely break as individuals, right? We're surrounded by people who are caught up in that sort of rat race. So we can relate to the position that Daniel is in, right? And these people may do anything. They may tear anyone down, push anyone to the side to advance in this kind of scenario. And so how does Daniel respond? How does Daniel respond to this is what we're gonna learn from today. Chapter six, verse 10, Just this first verse so far, we're going to read. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to God, he here, just as he had done before. Okay? So Daniel's response was actually not much of a response at all as much as it was a lack of a response. Daniel simply did not change anything that he did. His prayer life seemed to have this public display fit into it where everyone knew when Daniel prayed they knew where he prayed they knew how he prayed he prayed with his windows open facing Jerusalem because for some reason he likes praying toward his old dead city that we've burned and destroyed like he thinks it's going to be rebuilt or something wink wink (laughs) we actually know the content of Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 so Daniel is a the first half of it is the story of Daniel. The second half of the book of Daniel is actually Daniel's writings himself, his prophecies and his prayers and things like that. And we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, so same time that we're talking about, the son of Ahasuerus, Amid by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70, 70 years. So I turned my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting sackcloth and ashes, prayer and repentance. So he's referencing here what we would know as Jeremiah 25 and 29. You can go read those in your Bible later. Prophecies from Jeremiah that God was going to judge Israel for their disobedience, send them out of the land, exile them, but... It will only last 70 years, and he will bring a remnant, a small group of survivors, back and rebuild what once was. And so Daniel says to himself, I know this promise, and this promise will dictate how I respond to this. I've been praying like this for almost 70 years, and I'm not going to give up now. If I was going to give up, I might as well have given up 60 years ago, right? I'm not going to stop now. Daniel's prayers were a consistent witness to the empire around him, that he knew from the scriptures that God did not abandon his people, he was refining his people. That is what is happening when Israel is in exile. Even though they were experiencing judgment, they knew God was with them because they were right in the middle of what God promised to do. This point is what we derive from this, okay? People come to know God primarily through the actions of his people, meaning that first step, right, someone who does not know God and does not have a relationship with God, that first step towards a knowledge of God is from a, uh, someone who is part of the people of God accurately representing who God is to someone. Before someone comes to church maybe, reads the Bible, usually this happens through the actions of people, and Daniel knows this. And so his decision has no uh, neutral possibilities. He either has a positive reaction or a negative reaction to this. What do I mean? Well, if Daniel were to submit to this ridiculous edict, what would that say? That would say that Daniel's God, he has the same faith in his God as all the other uh, exiles from other places who just had to put their gods made of wood and stone back in the cupboard, right? It would communicate, there's really no difference. There's no distinguished, I have just as much reason to be afraid as they do, right? So there's only a positive or negative response to this. There is no neutral response and if daniel were to submit to this edict who would witness to these people the greatness of his god and what he has promised leave that category open for them to understand that god has promised to return his people and he will do that verse 11 will really get rolling now verse 11 then these men went as a group or a mob and they found daniel petitioning and imploring his god they knew right where to find him because he does this so frequently So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, well, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, one of these immigrants, right, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed. For he prays three times a day. The nerve. The nerve of the guy. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. Why was he displeased? Because Daniel disobeyed the law, and he needs to come down with a a stern fist? No, it says he set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. This begins what I like to call the passion narrative of Daniel, okay? Now, typically when I say the passion narrative, you think of Jesus, right? This is the week... That Jesus died where he was betrayed, he was crucified, he was buried in a tomb, and on the third day he rose again. This is the Passion Week of Jesus. What we'll find actually, and this is maybe why Daniel 6 is my favorite chapter in my favorite book of the Old Testament, is that Daniel's life, this chapter here, is almost a like-for-like, shot-for-shot prediction of what the Messiah would go through. So let's focus here. We're going to read Daniel and parallel it with the passion narrative of Jesus and understand why God and how God was with Daniel during this entire thing. Daniel understands that a life in exile requires a steady rebellion against the formation of the world, right? It says that they found him praying upstairs, facing Jerusalem, windows open for everyone to see, as was his custom. This was not something that he started in response Oh, they're starting to persecute, now I'll become a strong disciple, right? The going is getting tough, now I'll toughen up, right? He understood that this was always a possibility, especially in his context, and he disciplined himself accordingly. And they found him exactly where he should have been, praying toward God's promises. Where did they find Jesus when they went to arrest him? He was praying in the garden with his disciples when Judas... And his group, his mob, found Jesus right where they were supposed to be praying. And that's where they put on Jesus these bogus charges to crucify him as a criminal. In Mark chapter 14, verse 60, we read this about Jesus' fair trial, right? Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's a quotation from Daniel 7. He's explicitly linking his experience to the prophecy God made through Daniel. Please read that in your own time, Daniel 7. Fantastic. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? Have you heard the blasphemy? What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. When we read this story in light of Daniel, we realize, man, the Jewish religious system, who's supposed to be on the front lines of expecting the Messiah, have become just like Persians who killed Daniel or tried to kill Daniel. It's very heartbreaking, especially if you understand The context, okay? Darius, flashing back to Daniel, Darius knew what he had in Daniel, right? But he was politically paralyzed when it came to helping him. He had been duped. He had been uh, tricked. He had been defrauded. The very thing he hired these people to do uh, or to prevent is what they did to him, right? It's exactly uh, like God with the religious system, exactly what God enabled these people to do, hired these people to do, called these people to do. They did the opposite of it to Jesus. And so he's thinking, maybe I can sign an executive order, get this overturned. Maybe I'll just go up to the podium and start a filibuster, right, and just talk and talk and talk and talk, right? We got a lot of filibusters today. Sadly, in this case, nothing Darius could do, aside from political suicide, going back on this irrevocable edict, which would basically make you unfit to be king, because we don't know what else you're going to do. He cannot do anything to save this innocent man, Daniel. And in the same way, Pontius Pilate did this with Jesus, right? As we flash forward again uh, to Jesus, to the passion uh, in uh, chapter 15 of Mark, it said, Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, an actual Revolutionist, an actual insurrectionist who would kill people for the kingdom of Israel right he would storm the Roman Empire try to take it over by force he actually cares about the Jews let's release that guy and after having Jesus flogged he handed him over to be crucified so if the world would eventually do this to the king of the Jews as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all the prophets said would happen it's no surprise that they would do this to Daniel. Verse 15, back in Daniel, it says, Then these men went together to the king, a bunch of tattletales, and said to him, You know, your majesty, that it's a law of the Medes and the Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed, right? You know you're paralyzed. You can't do anything. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. Kind of like a stone in front of Jesus' tomb. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring. And with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. Daniel's faithfulness now has the king of Persia on his face, hoping in Daniel's God, To deliver Daniel, an innocent, righteous man, and vindicate him from certain death, pleading with God because of the righteousness and innocence of Daniel. Jesus' death had the same effect on the Gentiles that were present at his execution, right? Remember what we said here. People come to a knowledge of God primarily through the actions of his people. That's what's happening here. In Mark 15, we see a similar thing happen uh, with Jesus. He's on the cross. He's dying. And it says in verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple, the rebuilt temple, was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him, a Roman military worker who thinks that Jews are disgusting, when he saw him, when he saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The religious elite, the Jews who had all these prophecies, all the scriptures, all this information, they look to Jesus and they say, you're not it. We don't like the way that you're operating. But a Roman military worker who barely knows any of these things simply looks at the way Jesus died and says, surely you're the son of God. Surely. Back in Daniel at verse 19. It continues, it says, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? And then Daniel spoke with the king, he said, may the king live forever, long live the king. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him and also before you, your majesty. I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den, they, their children, and their wives. Yikes. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them, crushed all their bones what just happened does daniel say that he was saved from the lions Uh, maybe i don't really know what happened maybe the lions just weren't hungry doesn't say that no does he say uh, for some reason the lions didn't eat me and maybe this is like a god thing maybe it's not no he knows exactly what has happened he said god sent his angel and his angel shut the mouths of the lions. He said, God sent for me. I was here. I was in trouble. I was distressed, in certain death, and God sent for me, right? Have you guys ever been sent, sent for? Has, ever, uh, has anyone ever sent someone to come get you and you just felt very wanted, right? You said, oh, it must be very important, right? This reminds me of when I was like, in uh, elementary, middle school and I'll get dismissed early from class to go home early. You got ever happen to you guys just sitting in class right after uh, after lunch right just ate a fat quesadilla that the lunch lady made me and I'm sweaty from recess. I got like two hours left and I do not want to learn about prepositions and prepositional phrases and all these things and all of a sudden out of nowhere. Beep 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 beep. Miss Davis. Yes. Do you have Cohen Brown in there. Yes I do. Could you release him for early dismissal? Oh, my God. (laughs) It's finally right? I get to go home early. And I would leave, and then uh, this happened to me one time, and my my uncle was there. He just picked me up early from school, and he's like, we're going to see a movie, right? I was like, you've saved me from this hell. (laughs) You've sent for me, right? You've sent for me. My iPad just closed and doesn't want to open back up. Here we go. Let's get back on topic, guys. You're distracting me. And so, (laughs) malfunction. Here we go. (laughs) What's happening? Excuse me. Something magnetic is going on? All right, here we go. Who is this? Who is this angel? Who has sent for Daniel? Who has God sent to Daniel? Daniel has heard something like this, right? His friends we learned about last week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He heard that through their faithfulness, they were persecuted, right? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. We read about this last week. And the people who threw them in were killed by the fire. They weren't even in it yet. It was so hot. But somehow they didn't even smell like smoke, let alone get burnt. And why did this happen? It said they looked beside them, and there was a fourth person. There was another person standing in the fire. The Babylonians looked in. They said it looks like a fourth person is in there, a son of the gods, Who could this be? Daniel probably knew exactly who this was. This was the Messiah. Somehow, in some way, outside of time and space, Jesus just keeps appearing even when his name is not mentioned. He had heard his story from his friends, and he's probably hoped for years, maybe that will happen to me. Maybe I'll be blessed with such a visitation. And right before uh, Daniel probably dies, soon after this, from old age, he is rescued by the very Messiah that he was praying towards. I know Jerusalem will be rebuilt. God has promised that his Messiah has work to do there, and he has yet to come. In John 1.1, we read uh, the beginning of the Gospel of John. John explains how this is a reality, right? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing that uh, not one thing was created that has be- been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse fourteen, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed His glory. The glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The same glory that the centurion viewed when Jesus breathed his last and the sky went dark and the temple curtain was torn and the world as they knew it ceased to exist. This this angel of the Lord who appears through the Old Testament, who often is Jesus, has a habit of showing up in the darkest places and overcoming it. He does his best work in the darkness. The way of Jesus is the way of exile. Jesus knew that when he came into this dark world, when he exiled himself from heaven, he knew what that life would be like, just like Daniel knew when they were exiled, a life of mockery, misunderstanding, humiliation, betrayal, all the things that come with swimming upstream against a culture that wants to form you into the way of darkness. Okay, but some things that mark Jesus' ministry are some things we need to hold with us today. These were also markers of Daniel's daily life in exile. So we're going to look at some habits of communion. It's okay, I forgive you, Jesus. (laughs) Boom, gospel. We're going to look at some habits of communion that Daniel and Jesus both riddled their lives with on Earth. One, a habit of engaging the scriptures to hear from God. This sounds obvious. Christians, read your Bible, right? Even when you don't feel like I'm not trying to guilt you, but it simply must be done. Daniel's hope was shaped by the promises of God that we find in the scriptures. Daniel understood that God's judgment was not God abandoning Israel, but refining Israel because of the scriptures. Moses prophesied this exile way back in Deuteronomy. Later prophets did as well. It's all through scripture. Someone who's soaked in scripture like Daniel, was not surprised when these things happened. Jesus taught the scriptures to his disciples fervently. He quoted scripture to Satan in his temptation. He quoted scripture to the religious elite when they were acting like Satan. And he prayed the scriptures, Psalm 22, as he gave up his last breath on the cross. The scriptures were Jesus' language of beautiful resistance and peaceful rebellion. Scriptures were his language for that. Secondly, we need a habit of rebellious prayer and solitude. Peaceful rebellion and beautiful resistance against the cultural formation that wants so badly to form you to look like it must be contended against by prayer and solitude. What do I mean? Let's look in Luke chapter 5. After Jesus has done Umpteen signs and wonders. He's getting flooded with crowds of people. It says, but the news about him spread even more and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Jesus is God in the flesh, as we have understood. And he needed to get away. He needed to get away. And not only that, but he instilled in his disciples this discipline because when he was gone physically, Their discipleship would not survive without it. He instilled in them these disciplines because you cannot escape the formation of the culture if you don't simply escape the culture every now and then, right? And I just want to say right off the bat, it's hard in a city. It's especially hard. I live in a one-bedroom apartment. It's like 550 square feet. I have a couch, a kitchen table, a toilet, and a bed. Those are the places I can just be in my apartment. There's really not a place in my apartment uh, that I can set aside for just prayer and I can just get away from everything else. I'm trying to be creative this year, right? I'm trying to find a park or a walking route where it's all I do when I do that thing or go to that place is pray, right? Location, location, location. Resistant prayer needs to be done in a place where you don't binge stuff and where you don't stress about things and when you, uh, where you're not relaxing and, and just watching TV and stuff like that. It needs to be sacred if it's going to have a really strong effect. Rebellious prayer and solitude keeps your formation going and your focus on what God is doing, not what the world is doing to you. Okay, and this is a mystery, right? Every one of us here, your pastors too, like We read the gospels and we read how much Jesus prayed and how much he took his disciples to pray. And we read how slow the disciples were to take on this practice and understand and we are right there with them. Prayer doesn't really make a lot of sense but we will grow in our understanding if we simply do it. I'm not up here claiming to know every single thing about what prayer does, right? There's a mystery to it and it's part of our formation. These two disciplines... Solitude prayer and, and reading and listening to the word maintain a conversation with Jesus, a back and forth with Jesus. Without them, our discipleship does not stand a chance. And lastly, we need a habit of bringing others with us. Okay? habit of bringing others with us. Our discipleship cannot survive in a vacuum. Even Daniel had the support of his three friends. Right? God provided that for them. And typically, when someone doesn't have that, uh, it's only f- it should only be for a season, the most dire circumstances. We need to seek out those who can mentor, teach, and model the way of Jesus to us and find ways to just spend time with those people. And in the same way, we need to seek out younger, less mature believers in our community and teach, model, and uh, demonstrate to them what Jesus has done in us. And that ebb and flow of pouring in and pouring out Keeps the vehicle of the church moving and prevents it from being stagnant. Personal and communal Christian spirituality must coexist to support one another to survive in exile, right? Robert Mulholland, who we've used his definition for spiritual formation, being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others, that's what we're doing as Christians, right? He says this at the end of his book, uh, Invitation to a Journey. He says, Social spirituality or communal spirituality is rooted in the integrity of our life together as citizens of New Jerusalem. If we do not have a corporate spirituality of accountability to one another for our pilgrimage toward wholeness in the image of Christ, we are going to be subverted by the values and perspectives of the fallen order around us. As a church, we will fall captive to the culture. If we are not, equally invested in a communal spirituality and an individual strengthening of our spirituality, we will fall captive. And this all comes at a cost. Bonhoeffer was not surprised when the Nazis eventually came for him because it was happening to his brothers and sisters already. His brothers and sisters were not surprised when they came for Bonhoeffer. He knew that discipleship to Jesus was costly. He would end up writing a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and where he focused on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which uh, in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this He says, You are blessed when they insult you, disciples, and when they persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Not because you're a jerk, because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Daniel, of course, was one of these prophets, one of these prophets before them. Daniel knew what lay ahead when he was praying in his upper room, focused on the promises of God, and he was not surprised when they came for him. Jesus went through the exact same thing when he was in the upper room with his disciples, and he told his disciples, my betrayer is at hand, and they are soon to come for me. It was that night that they did. He was not surprised, and neither should we. Should this be our reality one day? Or simply should the world change as we know it? Again, which it will. Let, us f- let them find us in the same place that they found Daniel and in the same place that they found Jesus. Together, where we need to be, focusing on the promises of God in the discipline of prayer. Let's pray to the Lord today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your model in Jesus, Lord. And we thank you for your servants like Daniel, who came before you, Jesus, and paved the way for the Messiah. We thank you for your perfect life, your substitutionary death, and your victorious resurrection. We know that in all things you're here with us, Jesus, in all your trials and all your temptations, you relate to us, you empathize with us, you are here with us in every furnace, in every pit, in every lowly space, you have entered into that, Jesus, and you have come out the other side victorious. So we praise you and we worship you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to take communion together.